On today's episode, Anna shares the horrific death of Christy Bamu, a young boy accused of witchcraft and murdered by his own family. Then later, Ashley shares the story of family annihilator Ronald Gene Simmons, a man whose crimes were so grotesque, his execution became one of the fastest ever completed in U.S. history. Welcome to Crime Bar. Good morning. Hello. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's hard not to say yeah. how are you following that. I know. But I know you're doing well, so don't answer. Okay, I won't. Um, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. It's our Christmas, I mean, our holiday episode. Absolutely. I cannot wait. Uh, did you have a hard time finding a holiday-themed story? That hasn't been covered a million times? Yes. Well, everything's been covered. <laughs> We're not, I mean, ish, we're not of. like, we're not investigative we're journalists. Ground, we're not going to break a story. Yeah, we're groundbreaking. No. And also it's tough because it's the holidays and it's nothing like covering like a grisly murder on like a really happy day. Um, but I did it and I think you did too. I did it too. And it's, mine is like, actually speaking of not finding something covered, I actually don't, I've never heard this story covered before anywhere. So it's really. So it is groundbreaking. You did it. <laughs> no, I definitely didn't. I'm not going to take credit for that. But it was groundbreaking for you and I. Cool. I'm going to break this story to you. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do for the holidays? Just spend it with my parents. Oh. Yeah. Small, small little Christmas. Nothing big. We normally do like a huge Christmas Eve dinner at my uncle's, but not this year. Sad. What about you? I felt impolite <laughs> asking you. <laughs> What about you, Ashley? Did you say you feel impolite asking me? I felt impolite not asking you. I just realized I just ended it with, I'm doing this, and then I didn't <laughs> ask you. but Because that's all that matters. Yeah, what about you? I, I don't really know. Like, with, with COVID, we, we're we not really sure. Yeah. So. It won't be a big party, let me tell you that. Mm, no, definitely not. Okay, cool. Okay. I haven't, I haven't had coffee today, which is I'm now feeling is a huge mistake. Do you want one? <sighs> Fuck me. Yes. Is that okay? Do you have time for me to make yeah, one? It would take like five minutes to make it. Okay, cool. I'm and I wouldn't mind making, I wouldn't mind having a coffee too. So, okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Um, You're recording? Yeah, this is all recorded. Okay, no, I, just, I just was making sure that all of a sudden I'm like, if we fucking go an hour and 45. Do you want to pop your head out? I'm going to pop my head yeah. out just for, just for comfort. One second. It's green. So that's good, right? I'm fucking with you. Oh, I'm like, what the fuck? I just woke you up a little bit. Yes. All right. More than that coffee. Yes. I feel like invigorated right now. So good call on the coffee. Cool. Um, okay. So we're back with our coffee. We're back. I'm going to take a, a slurp. So I'm going to like, kind of like lean away. Me too. Okay, cool. One, two, three, go. It was perfect. Oh, oh it tastes like I slept 10 hours <laughs> when I didn't. 
Okay, so I'm going to go first because your story is longer, right? Correct. I have lots to say. Okay. So my story, it's, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time. It's a fucking bummer. Really? Yeah, it's a bummer. And there's no redeeming parts to this. There's no, like, you know. No organizations were started or, like, nonprofits. And I love those stories. I love it when, like, something, like, so positive comes from something so horrible. And there's nothing positive from this. It's just sad. I am so happy you're covering it. (laughs) This was a really good choice, Ashley. (laughs) I didn't have a choice because I was the one who was like, we got to do holiday. It's got to be a holiday theme. That's very true. And I don't know why. And like, I I was the one who decided that. And then you already found your story. So then I couldn't take it back. And the whole time I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I do that? So um, I'm doing the story of Family Annihilator, Ronald Gene Simmons. Hello? No, I'm listening. I literally just closed my eyes and I'm like, this is going to be a family wipeout. I can just feel it. And I'm mentally prepared. Family Annihilator. Oh, I don't really. Yeah. Wait, is that what that means? (laughs) Yes. Annihilator. Okay. Annihilator. Yeah. Family Annihilator. Like he killed all of them. That word sounds a lot like annihilation. Wait. Oh, man. Okay. Annihilation. Yeah. No. It's the same. Oh. It might. It has an H in it. Yeah. In, in Hill- yeah. Okay, so I thought that was something very different. Um, so yeah, he annihilated his whole family. That's, and it's it's just sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I got all of this information from Murderpedia. I don't know if you have come across that. Of as course. Your, oh, have you? Of course. Yeah, for oh. one of my cases, my, one of my solo cases, I did most of my stuff for Murderpedia. Oh, it's bless you, Murderpedia. I know they're Am incredible. Right? They're doing a good job. It's got everything. Like it, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So this story starts on Monday, December 28th, 1987, in the small town of Russellville, Arkansas. And uh, by small, I mean, I think I read it was like less than 20,000. And I think that that's small, but that living sounds in- so big to me. I'm like, small to me is there's 75 people in that town. 20,000 is overwhelming. Is it though? I mean, like living in LA has really kind of warped my definition. Like, I, I, I don't yeah. know. It. I don't know. I guess I just know like a hundred people total. So 20,000 sounds like a lot, but keep going. So 47 year old Ronald, uh, who actually goes by his middle name, Gene, uh, Gene drove from his trailer home in Dover to the Peel, Eddie and Gibbons law firm in Russellville. He walked through the front door and approached a receptionist that he knew named Kathy Kendrick. Kathy was only 24 years old and it's believed that she was targeted because Jean had become infatuated with her recently, but she had rejected him. So he shoots her in the head four times and then turned around and casually walked back out the way he'd entered. You just really jumped right into the murder. I was expecting like a slow build. No. Oh my God. So from that law office, he went to Taylor Oil Company. That's where he shot a man named James David Chafin through the eye, killing him instantly. He also shot the owner of the company, a man named Rusty Taylor, but luckily he survived his wounds. The target at that location actually had been Rusty all along, and James was a total stranger to Gene, and he just, it was one of those cases of like, wrong place, wrong time, and he just happened to get in the way of it. Just like at the law office, Gene casually walked back out and continued on to his next stop. He goes to a convenience store he used to work at called Sinclair Mini Mart, and he shoots two employees. They both survive, thank God, and Gene casually leaves and continues on to his final destination. 
what did any of these people do to him? Maybe you get into this, but yeah, I'm at a grocery store. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll tell oh, you. Sorry, I'm pissed. <laughs> I'm pissed. He arrives at Woodline Motor Freight Company and shoots a female employee named Joyce Butes in the head and in the chest, but she miraculously survives. She got shot in the head and the chest. Like I don't, I yeah, I don't know. It's unfathomable to me. So instead of leaving like he did the other places, Gene walks over to a receptionist named Vicki Jackson and orders her to call the police. And she begs him not to kill her too because she saw that whole thing. Like he just walked in. And she just thinks that she's next. Of course. And so she's begging him. And and he says, I only wanted to kill Joyce, just Joyce. I didn't want to hurt anybody else. I've gotten everyone who wanted to hurt me. And then he just sat with her like casually while they waited for the police to arrive. Can you imagine how sick to her stomach she must have been just sitting next to this man that could easily just turn on her too? No, I can't. Like that's, oh my God, to even like witness someone getting shot. You oh, know? you'd be in such shock. And then you're just sitting there and you are you can't go over and see if she's even alive. and Like just, you can't have a casual conversation. And you f- I feel like you'd want to out of survival just so that person didn't turn on you too. Oh, you know? I wouldn't. I'd oh. be so pet- I'd probably pee in my chair. Yeah. Probably. Are you saying you wouldn't pee in your chair? You would just talk to him about the weather? I'd probably poop. <laughs> <laughs> you know me? <laughs> God, it'd be game over for me. Yeah. So when the cops get there, he hands over his gun and he fully cooperates during his arrest like he didn't just murder and wound a ton of people. This entire killing spree took a total of 45 minutes and all the victims that he had targeted had either been former employers or former co-workers, except for that one man, James, who had just, you know, he got in the way of Gene's real target. He shot a total of six people, two of which died. After he was booked, police tried contacting his family to inform them, but they couldn't reach his next of kin. So the cops drive out to Gene's home, which was in this like really isolated area where there was like essentially nothing but his trailer home. They go there expecting to find his wife, but when they arrive, no one answers the door. So they're looking through the windows and they see what looks like an adult female lying on the ground near the Christmas tree. Oh no. And when police enter the trailer, they find, surrounded by unopened Christmas gifts, the dead bodies of five of Jean's family members inside the home. Oh my God. That is like a vision you cannot unsee for the rest of your life. That's awful. It gets worse. Okay. After searching the property, they find the bodies of two of Jean's infant grandsons stuffed into garbage bags in the trunk of a broken down car on the property. The following day... Police find a shallow grave containing seven more bodies of Jean's relatives. All in all, they find 14 bodies of Jean's family members, his wife, his kids, their spouses, and their children. How have I never heard of this? Dude, I know. I mean, that's how I felt too. Like, I've never, it's mind-boggling to me. I have dry mouth from having my mouth just be wide open for the past 30 seconds. Yeah. That is insane. No, your mouth dries up really quick. It really does. Just shrivels right up. (laughs) Okay, so it kind of starts off with a bang, no pun intended. So now I'm going to back up and try to give you a little bit of the background. So Ronald Gene Simmons was born in Chicago on July 15th, 1940. So he's a cancer. Uh, When he's only three years old, his dad dies of a stroke, and his mom very quickly remarries uh, an engineer in the U.S. Army. 
when Gene is 17, he drops out of high school and joins the Navy. And he supposedly had a really difficult relationship with his siblings and his stepdad. So, I mean, maybe he just did that to get away from home. I don't know. Mm-hmm. He marries a girl named Becky Yulabri. I don't know if I said that right, and I meant to look it up and I forgot. But they get married in New Mexico in 1960. He leaves the Navy to join the U.S. Air Force, and he and Becky move all over the place during his service, and they end up having a total of seven kids over the course of 18 years. He served in Vietnam. He earned a ton of military awards and medals and all that crap, and after 20 years of honorable service, he decides to retire from the military in 1979. I kind of regret including all of that because I really don't give a shit. Just, I'm trying to find a solution to that. Um, you can noise edit it out. I could, but... Hey, you already said it, so... Yeah, I already said it. So he and his family settle in this area called Cloudcroft, New Mexico. And I couldn't find anything on when it started, which maybe means he was doing it all along. But he was very physically abusive and would beat his wife, Becky, on a regular basis. It's awful. Yeah. And she complained to, and it wasn't like a secret. She was very vocal about it. She was vocal about it. She claimed, you know, complained about it to her family. She told them that she felt trapped in her marriage and And just scared to leave probably. Yeah. So in 1981, Jean and Becky's kids range in age from like early twenties to infant. And they find out that their oldest daughter, 17 year old Sheila is pregnant. After enough time goes by that her pregnancy is showing and everyone knows Sheila's teachers hear rumors at school that it was actually her own dad who got her pregnant. Yikes. Oh, yikes. Additionally, friends of the Simmons family report to social services that they witnessed Jean kiss Sheila in an inappropriate way on more than one occasion. I judge that. As you should. Yeah, I judge that. So this is when Jean very proudly announced to his wife and kids that Sheila was in fact pregnant with his child and he expected his wife Becky to raise the child as her own. That's a big ask. It's a huge ask. His family was obviously horrified and his oldest son Ron Jr. even contacted a social worker to report this and then right around the same time Sheila ended up confessing to a counselor at school that her dad had quote destroyed her. And he had, in fact, been raping her since she was 15, and now she was pregnant with his child. So the authorities are hearing these claims from multiple sources all at the same time. And when she's approached, Sheila cooperates with the social services investigation and tells them the truth. So very quickly, like they didn't waste any time, an arrest warrant is issued for Gene. But when the police go to his home to arrest him, they find that he and his family have completely skipped town. And authorities can't locate them. So apparently the charges of raping his own daughter get dropped. They just didn't think to look for the guy. I, I, it was like they were like, oh, he's gone. OK, never mind. Like he, he was no longer. They just couldn't find him or his entire family. And so then they just gave up. Wow. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, he's disappeared. So the family ended up moving to some really isolated area in Arkansas for a short time. And then ended up settling permanently on this even more remote area called Dover, which is about 15 miles outside of Russellville. Dover had a population at the time of roughly 1,400 residents, which I know is super tiny. That is small. Now that I deem small. (laughs) Yes, I know what I said earlier, but like I know for a fact that that is small. 
Uh, he buys 13 acres of land and situates two old and very run-down trailer homes together in a sort of like haphazard way. And the home didn't have indoor plumbing or a phone. Okay. Okay. And even though they were on acres and acres of land with no neighbors in sight, Gene constructed this super janky 10-foot high privacy fence made out of like scrap metal and other pieces of junk he had lying around. So it's... Everything about it. None of this is safe. No, and it's just scary. Yeah, it's very scary. He further barricaded the home with cinder blocks and barbed wire, and he placed large no trespassing signs everywhere. So it just looks like the way that I'm envisioning it, it just sounds like a horror movie. What I'm picturing is like a chain link fence with the signs that say like caution dog will bite or something. And it's like a Rottweiler running with its mouth open. You know what I mean? Really? That's like not as scary as what I was picturing. Oh, it's scary when you're there. It's scary when you're there for sure. (laughs) The property was full of like rundown cars and junk that Gene would collect as quote building materials. Okay. He didn't build anything. He He was a collector, if you will. Yeah. (laughs) He called his gross little compound Mockingbird Hill, and it was just like his own little oasis, like away from the world where he controlled and abused his family. So after their move, he starts getting low-paying odd jobs in Russellville, and he can't manage to keep any of them. All of the businesses that he targeted in his shooting spree from the beginning of the story were locations, were all the locations of these odd jobs, and he was fired from every one of them. And at least one of them he was fired from specifically after multiple complaints that he was sexually harassing other employees. And he was just like a real dick. An all, all around the piece board. of shit. Yeah, he was, he was just terrible. And he was super um, possessive and controlling. He made sure he was the breadwinner and that he controlled all of the finances. His wife, Becky, attempted to leave him on multiple occasions over the years, but he made it impossible to do it without leaving some or all of her kids behind. And because she just wasn't willing to leave her babies behind, she was completely trapped. She prioritized her children over her own well-being. Yeah. The kids weren't allowed to have friends over and they weren't allowed to go anywhere outside of school. Becky wasn't allowed to see her family or have friends of her own, but she was allowed to attend a local church on occasion. And the people who knew her from church later claimed to have seen bruises on her arms and neck regularly, but they never reported it. They never even talked to her about it. Jean even did shit like open everyone's mail and inspect it. Great. (laughs) Like he just like controlled every aspect of their family life and their home and all that stuff. He just went down the list of all the ways one person can be awful and then checked all the boxes. Yeah. So because the trailer didn't have indoor plumbing, he made his kids dig these holes in the ground outside as outhouses. And I believe that I read there were two makeshift outhouses on the property. But then a few weeks before Christmas, Gene instructed his kids to dig another hole because he claimed he wanted to add a third outhouse. Oh, fancy upgrades. Yeah. The kids dug the hole, but then Gene didn't finish the job. So the hole just became this like really gross cesspit near the trailer. Yeah. Gene was said to be a very sarcastic know-it-all that drank a lot and spent a lot of time by himself in a dark, foul-smelling room, which is like a really (laughs) weird thing. Like what made the room smell? Like what are you doing in there, sir? Yeah. 
So up until the rumors about who fathered Sheila's unborn baby, all of the teachers of the Simmons kids didn't suspect anything was going on at home, which seems really crazy to me because like the ages of the kids range so significantly that we're talking about many different teachers. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, this is a really small town where everyone knows everyone. So even though the family kept to themselves on their little, you know, isolated plot of land, it just seems bizarre that nobody suspected any abuse. And obviously, you know, the people at that church who saw bruises on Becky, they're not seeing the kids. Yeah. You know, but it's just. Well, a lot. What, sorry. What year did this happen again? Uh, we are in the 80s. In the Okay. So you never know. It's like the ways that people look for abuse could have shifted or like the knowledge on that because maybe people were just trained to look for the obvious signs and maybe. not necessarily just being withdrawn or, yeah. you know. It's a little bizarre. Like, yeah, I mean, is. I agree that, that that could be it, but they the teachers, after all this happened, the teachers also said they didn't really know the kids, which also seems really strange to me because classes are small. Were they just ignored or were they, because they were poor, were they considered? But they, I mean, they lived in a poor area. They're all on the same, you know, economic. That's weird. It's, I, it's hard to explain that. I don't, it I don't is. It's really that. strange. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that everyone who had regular contact with those kids carries that guilt forever. So... I'm not trying to be judgmental because hindsight is always twenty twenty. It's just so sad. It's just more like trying to understand yeah. so that it doesn't happen again. Like what are the signs to look for and things like yeah. that, you know? So then after these murders, all of these teachers stated that the Simmons kids, Simmons kids were always clean. They seemed well-fed. They behaved like normal kids. They rarely missed school. Their studies were all average and nothing that caused anyone to take notice. And the school bus driver said that every morning the kids were always at the bus stop waiting. They were never late and they were always polite and well behaved. Those are all things that would not raise any red flags. I mean, even I think in my own brain, I would think that the child would be, you know, unclean, wearing the same outfit over and over again, not coming with food, being, you know, sporadically late or what, you know what I mean? Like those are the things that I would be looking for. Yeah. So I can kind of understand a little bit where the teachers were coming from. Yeah. So not long after settling into this creepy little compound, Sheila gave birth to a daughter that she named Sylvia Gale. Jean forced Becky to raise baby Sylvia, and Becky didn't really have any way out of it, and she told her family, I'm humiliated doing this. The three oldest kids, Ron Jr., Sheila, and Billy, all got out of the house as soon as they possibly could, and they built new lives for themselves. But they had four siblings who were still young and living at home. And then, of course, their poor mom. So while they did make new lives for themselves away from him, they were still pretty involved in the family. And Jean seemed particularly upset by the fact that not only did Sheila leave the family home, but she also took Sylvia with her. So she ends up meeting and marrying a man named Dennis McNulty, which felt like the ultimate betrayal to Jean. Isn't like that- his daughter had moved on to another man? Yes. That is disgusting. Yes. And Dennis was a really good guy who knew the truth about Sylvia's paternity, and he accepted her as his own child. Kudos to Dennis. Yeah. It makes me so sick. I know. <laughs> it I just know. makes me so, so sick to, like, think about it. Just so full of rage. Yeah. I would have a hard time not hurting the man that did that to my wife. Yeah. So... Jean's last job before the murders was at the Sinclair Mini Mart. He had been working there for the past year and a half. But on Friday, December 18th, exactly one week before Christmas, Jean is fired from his job at the Mini Mart. 
And I couldn't find any reason why, but I mean, it's not hard to come up with some pretty solid guesses. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Probably hitting on some poor female. So why exactly he decided to kill his family is unclear. And apparently whatever information he gave to police after he was arrested didn't shed any light on that either. But what we do know is that a few weeks before Christmas, Becky had written a letter to one of their sons, Billy, and she alluded to wanting to divorce Jean. Her letter read in part, I don't want to live the rest of my life with dad. I'm a prisoner here and the kids too. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. On the morning of Tuesday, December 22nd, after the kids go to school, Gene shoots his wife, Becky, to death. And there weren't a lot of details that I could find, so all I know is that their older son, Ron Jr., brought his three-year-old daughter, Barbara, over there to visit that day. And Gene kills his son in the same manner he did Becky. And after this, he strangles Barbara. Oh, my God. He then takes all three bodies out to the pit he'd recently had his younger kids dig for another outhouse. And he dumps them in there and covers it. Then he sits down and he waits for the school bus to drop off his four youngest kids. Oh, my God. I just took a deep breath. This is a lot. And it gets worse. Yeah, I had a feeling. This was the beginning of the kids' Christmas break from school. So when they got home and they walk inside the house, Gene told them he had a special Christmas present for each of the kids that he wanted to give to them individually so as to not ruin the surprise. So he sends the kids to their rooms and tells them to wait until he calls them outside one at a time. The first one he called out was his daughter, Loretta, who was 17. She walked outside and approached her dad, expecting a Christmas present. Instead, he silently strangled her until she passed out. Then he held her head down inside of a water barrel until she stopped moving. He moved her body to the same cesspit that he dumped the bodies of his wife, son, and granddaughter in earlier in the day. And then he called out the next child and repeated the process until he had killed everyone there. So he's like remaining in a state of... Uh, like when you think of murder or when I think of murder, it's like this, you know, in the moment, um, full of rage sort of thing. But the fact that he was able to continue to do this throughout the day and watching one by one, his children die Mm -hmm. by his hands. Mm -hmm. I just, this was not a crime of passion and it was not like a moment of insanity this was calculated a conscious decision you would just think I mean I guess I have you know a a more a more normal brain but you'd think you'd snap out of it you know like what have I done but you know anyways keep going his other two adult children Sheila and Billy and their families were not expected to come over for Christmas celebrations until the afternoon of the 26th and remember this all happened on the 22nd So Gene spent the next four days sitting alone at his house, drinking and watching TV. Just living amongst all the bodies. Mm -hmm. They're all out in the cesspit. Around noon on the 26th, Gene's son Billy and his wife Renata arrive with their 20-month-old son Trey. Police believe that upon entering the house, Gene immediately shot both Billy and Renata. And then he arranged their bodies in a row near the Christmas tree and covered them with their own winter coats. He then strangles little Trey and puts his body in a trash bag before hiding that in the trunk of a broken down car. Sheila and her husband Dennis arrive about an hour later with six-year-old Sylvia and their 21-month-old son Michael, and Jean repeats the same scenario as with Billy and Renata. 
He shoots Sheila and Dennis when they walk into the house and then arrange their bodies in the living room. He why, play- I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but why is he shooting the adults and then strangling the children? I, I'm asking I'm, you as if you should know this, but yeah, he that, didn't tell me, but yeah, that pattern is, I'm assuming that he did that just because you can incapacitate an adult faster if you shoot them. That's okay. That's very true. That's what I'm guessing. Yeah. But then, you know, then why strangle anyone if you're going to, you know, well, like, absolutely. well, duh. Yeah. Why do any of this? But I was just wondering, but that makes sense to, you know, the adult has the strength to possibly push you off and things right. like that. I get that. Yeah. He placed Dennis next to Billy and Renata, but Sheila's body was placed on the dining room table and covered with his wife's best tablecloth. He strangles Sylvia, and then, oddly, he placed her body into one of the beds and, like, tucked her in as if she was sleeping. He strangled Michael, and just like with Trey, he placed him into a garbage bag and hid the body in the trunk of the same broken-down car. This was the end of his killing spree in terms of his family, but he had others that he planned to kill. So he had to wait out the weekend until those people would return to work on Monday morning. So on the 26th, after finishing his murders, he goes to a nearby Sears department store to pick up some Christmas gifts that hadn't arrived in time for the holiday. For the people that he just killed? Yeah. Okay. Then he spends the evening at a local bar drinking. Then he goes home and he spends that whole weekend watching TV and drinking, surrounded by the bodies that he'd left in the living room. It's like 14 people at this point, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and then there was only like five in the house, but like still. Still. That's five too many. (laughs) Yes. And then on the morning of Monday the 28th, he goes on his murder spree at all of the former jobs. By the time the police discovered he'd killed his entire family, Gene was already in custody for that shooting spree, obviously. And there's no clear explanation for why he chose to kill literally everyone in his family, but it seems likely that a lot of different factors pushed him over the edge. His wife's letter to Billy indicated that she was getting closer to leaving him, and it's possible Gene caught on to that. His daughter, Sheila, who he called his little princess, was no longer there to be abused by him. And... She'd recently had another baby, but this time with her husband. God forbid. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he was also fired from the Sinclair Mini Mart four days before he started killing his family. So this nuts man is probably feeling like a failure. You know what I mean? In his terms, like he lost his daughter to another man. Um, yeah, job I mean, loss, everything. it's easy to speculate, but the bottom line is this dude was sick and hearing a twisted explanation for his actions doesn't change what he did. Oh, so, yeah, of course. You know. I'm just saying like all these family mass, you know, murder, suicide situations, it's normally like that failure thing that triggers it. Doesn't mean it's justified or makes any sense. Yeah. Gene was charged with 16 counts of murder and was facing the death penalty if convicted. During the trial, an undated letter he'd written to his daughter, Sheila, was introduced as evidence by the prosecution. And it read in part, you have destroyed me and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell. He said this to her? Uh-huh. And it's speculated because it, w- it wasn't dated. So it's speculated that he wrote that to her maybe when she reported the molestation when she was a teenager or maybe when she left home and married and started her own family. Prior to this letter being introduced, Jean had had a calm demeanor during his trial. But after the letter is read aloud in court, he starts screaming. 
he punches the prosecutor oh. in the face and then oh he tried to die for a deputy's gun. Like, isn't that insane? Uh, how, I mean, this is like, how has a movie not been made I know. about that? I can't even believe I've never heard of this. So just before deliberations begin, Jean says to the court, quote, to those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. Like, yeah, exactly. Finally, something we can agree yes, on, Gene. For the deaths of Kathy Kendrick and James Chafin, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection, plus 147 years in prison. That'll do. And then for the deaths of his family members, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. And he repeatedly waived all rights to appeals. Okay, so I want you to see what he looks like. Oh, no, because no, when no, I was no. researching this, I was really deep into the story before I saw any photos. But when I did, I literally gasped. I'm nervous. he is the creepiest. He like looks exactly like he behaves. Oh my God, that's not what I was expecting. Uh-huh. Stop. Isn't he it? looks like creepy Santa. Yeah. Oh, like, I'm sorry, Santa, if you're hearing, if you're listening to this. We just lost Santa Claus as a listener. Oh my God, I'm not getting any gifts. That is so bad. He's so creepy. He has evil eyes. Yeah. Every, you know, oh. They're like, you know, I mean, I know it's a black and white photo and I'm like, they're black. <laughs> but you know how like a lot of murderers, they have like that, just those empty black eyes. He's got them. He sure does. Well, that was a treat. Yeah. On May 31st, 1990, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton signed Simmons' second execution warrant for June 25th, 1990. This was the quickest sentence to execution to death time in the United States history since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. Attaboy, Bill. Mm -hmm. Simmons refused all visitors, including legal counsel and clergy. His last words were, justice delayed, finally be done, is justifiable homicide. Which I don't fucking understand. Do you? No. I didn't. Can you repeat that actually? Because I, I didn't understand that. Can you actually say that again? Justice delayed, finally be done, is justifiable homicide. I don't even think that's a sentence. I just think they put words. To, I don't understand it. I don't know why my brain can't compute that. I'm sorry. I can't either. So, okay. I mean, I don't know. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, no extended family members claimed the body, so he was buried in a pauper's lot somewhere. A pauper's lot? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> I know. I, I, uh, Should I Google what a pauper's lot is? I don't know. I was thinking jalapeno poppers. Let me see. <laughs> no, it's P-A-U-P-E-R. P-A-U-P-E-R, pauper's lot? Uh-huh. All right, plot. Let's, plot. All right, let's check that, check that out. Oh, so it's like a charity. It's like a, a pauper is someone that receives aid from funds designated for the poor oh so maybe it's someone that can't afford like a proper oh burial. i see yeah that makes sense yeah because if his family denied the body they didn't want it his extended family that he didn't kill oh then. so it means that people who are buried in this kind of plot do not have the exclusive right of burial a phrase that defines someone's rights over a private grave oh okay yeah. oh does that mean like if if like police wanted to dig it up they could Without any, like, they, they don't need permission from family or something, maybe? I'm so confused because one thing says that and the other one is very clear and concise. It's basically a grave paid for at public expense because the deceased family um, or the, the person's family could not afford one. And he also killed his entire family. So I don't think that they would have even had an option to. No, I mean, he had extended family. 
Oh, okay. Like his wife's family, his... Basically, no one could afford it. <clears throat> well, they didn't want it. Yeah, they didn't want... Yeah. Bye-bye, Papo. <laughs> I'm just saying the definition of... Yeah. Um, this is the largest family murder in U.S. history with 14 lives snuffed out like they just didn't matter. He killed 16 people in total and attempted, but luckily failed to kill four more. The victims were as follows. His wife, Becky, who was 46... His son, Ron Jr., who was 27. His son, Billy, who was 23, and his wife, Renata, who was 21. His daughter, Sheila, who was 24, and her husband, Dennis McNulty, who was 23. His daughter, Loretta, who was 17. His son, Eddie, who was 14. His daughter, Marianne, who was 11. His daughter, Rebecca, who was 8. His 6-year-old daughter slash granddaughter, Sylvia, who'd been the product of raping his daughter, Sheila. His three-year-old granddaughter, Barbara Simmons, who was the daughter of Ron Jr. His grandson, Michael McNulty, who was 21 months and the son of Sheila and Dennis. His grandson, Trey Simmons, who was 20 months and the son of Billy and Renata. And then his other two victims that weren't related to him were Kathy Kendrick, who was 24, and James Chafin, who was 33. And just after reading all of this, I just, I couldn't stop. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. I couldn't stop thinking, like, how could no one notice anything or say anything? Like, how did how did all of this kind of that kind of abuse just go unnoticed? This was a huge family, and a major major accusation of a horrific crime was brought to authorities just a few years prior, but nothing came of it. So, like, how does that happen? It was going a lot. It was going on for a long time. It wasn't like this man just snapped one day and became this. Like, he's been doing this since the children's birth and but that's from what day I mean. one. It's incredible. It's so insane then, how, how does nobody? And it's. I think it's the size of the family that's the most baffling because I think if you have a really small family of one or two, I think it could be easier to overlook, but seven kids? Because it has the opportunity to, the it can reveal itself differently according to different personalities that way. If you have just one or two, I think it's easier to contain almost or yeah. keep an eye on, but when there's that many, some personalities might be able to disguise it while others just cannot. So that is mind-blowing to me as well. This paragraph from an article written by Anna Swan says it perfectly. How could a school system see these children on a daily basis and notice nothing odd psychologically, emotionally, or socially? Perhaps we lull ourselves into believing agencies, trained professionals, and organizations are in place to spot problematic families such as this and intervene before a tragedy such as this can occur. But the sad fact is that this sort of child abuse, spousal abuse, and dysfunction go unheeded every day. And that's the super bummer Christmas story of family annihilator Ronald Gene Simmons. Oh my God. I I just, I mean, I know I've already said it, I think, three times. The fact that that's the largest, you said mass or mass murder? Family. Family mass murder. And I've, I've never heard of this ever. Yeah. And I don't know... I honestly, like, I couldn't retrace where I found it. I was so deep trying to find the holiday one. That yeah. I, and then that's, I don't I, I don't know how it happened. But anyways, it's a super bummer. I'm sorry. My story is also going to be a super bummer, but on a very different, it's a very different type of story. Lots okay. of variety this episode. <laughs> okay. You ready for it? Mm-hmm. All right. Your mind's going to be blown <clears throat> multiple times throughout this because mine was. So I don't know if it was your story or the fact that I forgot to put Deodor on this morning. It is not good over here. <laughs> you are very lucky you're in a separate room. <laughs> My BO is next level, Ashley. Like I, I thought like, cause I'm 28 that 
you just kind of stop needing it because you're, oh no that's not how that works oh yeah and I was like I just do it out of habit you know I put that deodorant just because it's a habit but I it's so necessary for me yeah. personally it's necessary for everyone yeah PSA wear deodorant everybody everyone wear it's it. key a key part of your routine mm-hmm. you're not above it no okay so I want to make this very very clear before I dive into this story um I fully understand there are cultures, religions, and traditions completely different than my own. But so I like to learn and I like to try to understand with an open mind and an open heart. And while I might not agree or believe everything I read, I never want to sound judgmental or critical. Throughout this story, I will be discussing things far beyond anything I have ever seen or experienced, and the only thing I am judging and criticizing is the harm done towards children. Oh, that's what your story involves? Yeah, there's definitely... I I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. My apologies, but it's important. It's really important to talk about because yeah. it, it covers a, well, yeah, a whole Yeah, I thing. totally agree with that, but it's just hard. It is hard. They're not my favorite. No. Um, so now that that's been made clear... I will start my story. Children have been accused of witchcraft for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is something I knew absolutely nothing about, but I had to write about it after doing some research and seeing that these accusations still fly around today. To me and many others, children are these innocent and sweet beings that just want love and approval. So for adults to accuse, torture, and kill children out of fear of possession and witchcraft is beyond me. That's not acceptable. Yeah, no, it's not. There's no excuse for that. Um, Some of the most infamous child accusations occurred during the Salem witch trials back in 1692, but they also take place all over Europe and Africa. So you might be wondering, like I did, how a child could possibly become a witch in the accuser's eyes. Apparently this could happen in multiple different ways. If two witches have children, then those kids will be witches. Okay, if a, but what defines a witch? I know, and that's that, that's the very frustrating thing about oh, this. Okay. You'll start to see a pattern. Yeah. And I, a pattern of uh, insanity. A lack of logic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If a child married a demon or had sex with a demon, then oh. they'd be a witch. Well, and I asked like, that question too quickly. You sure did. Defines- <laughs> you sure did, because that's one of the biggest things for me throughout this is where's the proof? Um, how do we know this? Yeah. How, uh, I, yeah. Um, if a parent had sex with Satan and the child was present, then the kid would definitely become a witch. Once again, reading that, try not to be judgmental and accept that everyone has their own thing, but that is No, we can bonkers. judge that. We can judge that. I'm not going to pretend like I'm not going to no, judge that. No, that's insanity to me. Physical abnormalities physical illness or mental disabilities are also considered signs of possession, premature birth, being an orphan, or even just showing signs of laziness could mean that you're a witch. Okay. If a kid misbehaved and was wreaking havoc around town, nobody was like, those are just some badly behaved kids. Instead, they were thought to have been led by the devil. You're talking like in the 1600s. Um, unfortunately, no, this is, this is, this is, this is something that still occurs. Um, I'm saying that this is like a mindset that is still occurring. Oh, yeah. And it is specifically in Africa. Just stay tuned. I'm going to really dive into it. Okay. Okay. 
So basically you have to be in perfect health and come from perfect circumstances or else you might face life altering accusations. The children that endure witchcraft accusations are subjected to horrific psychological and physical abuse. Not only do church pastors and healers get involved, but friends and family members as well. If the child isn't murdered, they are forced to suffer lifelong discrimination. When I was reading about the countless children that were violently tortured, murdered, or imprisoned, I was hoping that this was something that just happened a long, long time ago and something that was left in the past. Times were different and the amount of information and research available was limited back then, yada, 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 you know. But unfortunately, these accusations still occur. In the African culture, a witch is the most feared and hated person in society and they are believed to be the cause of all death and disease. I personally have never associated a witch with anything negative. Like to me, a witch is someone who is like incredibly in touch with the world and has an ability to heal and is just much more intuitive than normal folks. But um, in the African culture, a witch only means evil. So you can see that this is a very, very serious matter on both ends. The Mm -hmm. constant fear of witches and the fear of being accused of being a witch. Yeah. Sadly, I would just be on edge constantly. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Oh, no. Sadly, the poor economy and spread of HIV and AIDS just made people want to point fingers and figure out what was causing all of this tragedy. Mm. This way of thinking is considered ancient, but apparently has been on the rise in Africa due to a few charismatic preachers. Pastor Helen Ukpabio is well known for accusing children of witchcraft. She is an evil woman. I'm just going to say it. I try not to label anybody, but this this B word sucks. Um, So her views um, result in the torture and violent deaths of children. In 1992, she founded Liberty Foundation Gospel Ministries in Nigeria. She believes that the devil can possess a child's body and basically control their every move. These children are considered wizards or witches and can reveal their satanic possession through crying, screaming, and not eating their food properly. So basically all very normal things. Being that, a child. Yes, being a child, um, anything that they're capable of. the Nothing out of the ordinary. Her beliefs created a massive increase in child abandonment and abuse. The African Pentecostal charismatic preachers have been known to perform violent exorcism rituals on children. African Pentecostal is like a mix of Christianity and African witchcraft beliefs, by the way. I didn't know what that was. Okay. There were multiple exorcism techniques. Sometimes people were starved. Some were doused in gasoline and set on fire and others incarcerated. A lot of children were sent to live on the streets where they ended up getting trafficked and put in very dangerous situations. And others were simply murdered. Mm. Apparently in Angola, a lot of orphans were accused by their parents of being witches or possessed by demons. They literally did this so that they could feel better about not keeping their kid. So it was just an excuse. They, They didn't believe in witchcraft. It was the fact that they just didn't want to take care of their child. Their methods of exorcism included being tied up and beaten, getting unknown substances rubbed in their eyes, and starved. Mm. In Uganda, there are healers that call themselves witch doctors. If you pay them, they will communicate with spirits to figure out what sort of sacrifice 
they're willing to take in return for money and success. Most of the time, chickens and goats will do, but if the paying client doesn't instantly get what they want, um, a child is often sacrificed. Oh my God. The witch doctor will abduct a kid, make a potion out of their body parts, and eventually throw away the body. So they're in charge of everything from abduction to disposal for a fee. In certain parts of Ethiopia, kids that are born with physical disabilities are seen as impure and believed to be an an evil influence on the other children. So it is common for the disabled children to be taken from their tribe and forced to fend for themselves in the jungle. These poor children don't know how to fend for themselves and they have a disability on top of all of that, which makes it even harder to survive on their own. Therefore, most of the time the children die. The traditions vary from country to country, but they are all heartbreaking and horrific. According to Wikipedia, in the United Kingdom, research by Dr. Leo Rookby, and his name kind of rhymes with Buick, and so I was trying to do it like Rookby. Uh, I had a hard time with it. Um, showed that the problem of child witchcraft accusations were spreading from Africa to countries with African immigrant populations. In some cases, this has led to ritualized abuse and even murder. So it's unclear how many families just don't want to take care of their children and use their fear of witches as an excuse and how many are actually fearful of their kids. But the point is, it's still happening and it is awful. Okay, so now that I've given a little history and background information, I want to tell you all about the brutal murder of Christy Bamu. I've never heard of this. It's awful. Absolutely awful. Well, yeah. yeah. Your whole intro definitely <laughs> Yeah, it up. really sets the tone. One of the most recent and widely covered cases of witchcraft accusations occurred on Christmas of 2010. Christy Bamu was born on October 21st, 1995 in Paris, France. And unfortunately, I could not find much on Christy online, like his personality or what his peers said about him, which breaks my heart that's one of the things I like to know about the victim is just I don't know who they were who they were like but just based off of this man's this not man this child's face he seems incredibly kind and he the most beautiful smile he just had one of those faces that you instantly fall in love with and I'll we'll post pictures Christy traveled to London with his older brother Eves older sister Kelly and two younger siblings so that he could spend the holidays with his 29-year-old sister, Magalie. Supposedly, Christy wet his pants at some point during the visit, and his sister's boyfriend, Eric Bikubi, flipped out over this. What? I, I couldn't find anything about whether or not this was common for Christy, but I can't help but think that this was a high-anxiety response to feeling unsafe in his environment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It could have been. Eric had been close to Christy in the past and was considered to be like an uncle, but something about him peeing his pants made this man lose his mind. He claimed that Christy must be possessed with evil spirits. Yeah, it's a big leap. The couple was convinced that he was taking part in Kendoki, and Kendoki is what the Democratic Republic of Congo calls witchcraft. According to Wikipedia, there are 25,000 children living on the streets of Congo, and 60% of those homeless children had been exiled from their family homes because of Kondoki accusations. Wow. 
Um, this is when the unthinkable began. For four days, the couple tortured the poor boy. They used knives, wooden poles, pliers, a hammer, and metal bars to beat him repeatedly. Oh my God. While this is happening, they starved his siblings and didn't allow them to sleep. Oh. They were forced to pray for their brother as well as join in on the beatings. A few sources said that Christy, Kelly, and the younger sister were all accused of Kendoki. But for some reason, Christy received the worst of the treatment. And this might have been due to the fact that the other siblings confessed to performing black magic just because they wanted the beatings to stop. And oh. I guess their confession allowed, you know, some sort of relief. In Congo, exorcisms included starvation, torture, and being submersed in water. So it seems like they were trying to duplicate what had been done in their native country. After days of agony, Christy had had enough and admitted to being a sorcerer just so that they would stop hurting him. He begged them to kill him. Oh, poor baby. Magalie and Eric completed their final exorcism ritual and drowned him in the bathtub. Oh. And at this point, Christy was too weak to even resist or keep his head, out, head above water on his own. So as yeah. soon as he was placed in the bath, he just went under and drowned. I mean, he asked for it. Like, that's how desperate he was. Absolutely, so to it, make the pain stop. Yeah. We will never know if the couple genuinely believed he was possessed or if it was just an excuse to torture and murder the innocent boy. According to tests done after the body was discovered, he had suffered over 100 injuries. Oh my God. His teeth had been knocked out and parts of his ears were torn off with pliers. <sighs> yeah, and I avoid crime scene photos completely. It's something that I, if there's some sort of like, <laughs> you know, warning or something, I will just not click on that website. I can't, I can't unsee it once it's seen. And I think it's just because reading and hearing information is just hard enough. But unfortunately on one of the websites, I missed where it said graphic images below. Um, oh and God. no words, Ashley, like the living room was completely covered in blood spatter. There were ceramic floor tiles that were completely smashed on the floors mm. and they were covered in blood and apparently those floor tiles were used to torture him oh just something i wish i had never ever seen and i cannot believe that children had to endure that yeah eric never denied killing christy but he did claim that he has brain damage and a schizophrenic type of mental disorder therefore he's not as much to blame <laughs> i was like sir yes you are clearly deranged but do not try and blame four days of torture and murder on anything other than being a shitty human being. Yeah. The jury did not buy this either and determined that he wasn't crazed over the four long days he spent brutally torturing this child. Therefore, he was found guilty of murder. He was also found guilty of two acts of bodily harm on the two sisters. He denied those, by the way. So he of course he did. Yeah, so he took complete accountability for murdering Christy, but he would not admit to torturing the other children. Judge Paget stated, The belief in witchcraft, however genuine, cannot excuse an assault to another person, let alone the killing of another human being. Mm -hmm. The sister, Majali, tried to claim that she was somehow forced into participating and didn't take any responsibility. She stated that her boyfriend, Eric, was controlling and that she felt stupid and weak around him. She also claimed that she never believed in witchcraft and that it was all Eric's obsession. 
I mean, if that's true, wouldn't there have been plenty of opportunity for her to seek help? To step in, leave the building, and get someone to help her? Yes. Secretly call the cops? Anything. Exactly. Exactly. There was four days that she could have done something. Yeah. Her siblings also had a very different opinion on the matter. Her sister, Kelly, discussed the horrors she experienced and witnessed. She said she could tell that Magalie was convinced the siblings had come to kill her. The couple had gotten into their heads that they were all dangerous witches, and no matter how much they all pleaded, they could not convince them. Kelly recalled Christy asking his sister for forgiveness, and Magalie told him that they deserved it and allowed the beatings to continue. So this woman that's not taking any accountability explicitly told these children that they deserved the torture that they were enduring. Wow. Magalie's lawyer asked her if she wanted her brother dead and if that it was ever her intention at any point to kill her brother. And she replied, never, no. He's my brother and I loved him. What I did was because I was forced to. What happened, I could not stop. Uh, Reading that just made a different type of rage fill my body. Yeah. After 26 hours of deliberating, the jury found Magalie guilty of murdering her little brother. I read an incredible article written by Albert Tucker for The Guardian about how crucial it is to not treat a case like this any differently than any other child abuse case. Because witchcraft is such a foreign concept to most, it's easy for people to put all the focus on that. Mm -hmm. But witchcraft is not to blame here. What happened to Christy Bamu was child abuse. Yeah. Plain and simple. And it is horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying. This is an excerpt from Albert Tucker's article. Although it feels instinctively uncomfortable, these cases do not require a special response. Existing child protection tools can be used as the abuse manifests itself within the four recognized categories, physical, sexual, emotional, and neglect. There are currently 47,000 children on at-risk registers in the UK, and the NSPCC reports that two children a week die through abuse. We need to make sure all frontline staff feel equipped to handle all forms of child abuse, including those linked to a belief in witchcraft and spirit possession. During the trial, Christie's father, Pierre, read a statement. Christie died in unimaginable circumstances at the hands of people who he loved and trusted, people who we all loved and trusted. To know that Christie's own sister, Magalie, did nothing to save Christie makes the pain that much worse. We are still unaware of the full extent of the brutality. We cannot bring ourselves to hear it. Oh, that's heartbreaking. And I read an, I read an article that they have chosen to forgive the murderers just so that they can begin their healing process. They obviously, you know, you'll never forget that. But I think just for their own, I, I cannot judge or make I mean, an opinion I, of any yeah. victim's healing process, but no. I, could not, I could not imagine. I can't imagine even being in that scenario, much less a way to move on. Absolutely. Or continue moving. I, I don't, I, it's unfathomable. Because <laughs> the family feels like, I mean, they, there's, they've made multiple statements about the fact that, yes, they lost their son, but they also lost other family members as yeah. well through this. Yes. Even though this crime is unthinkably awful, there are countless other stories like this. Like, there are too many to even mention. I was, over, I was overwhelmed. 
Um, fortunately, there are people doing something about this. There are multiple organizations and charities that fight to protect children and to provide health care and food to those on the streets. We will provide links to a few different organizations on our website if you would like to donate. And that is the story of Christy Bamu. You did a great job. That was... Um, it's dark. So heavy. It's dark. And it reminded me so much of just even during the Holocaust when people would deem people with disabilities or different than what they considered normal as evil and impure. Therefore, they were tortured, murdered, and treated like treated less than animals. Yeah. It's awful. You did a really good job telling it. That was an incredible story. Thank you, Ashley. Um, happy holidays. <laughs> Man, what's wrong with us for enjoying this? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I don't have an answer for it. Listeners, what's wrong with you? <laughs> well, we're all in it together. No, but seriously, this is, um, I'm not, I don't have this written down, so this might not be very eloquent, but um, as a whole, this year has been very difficult and being able to have this hobby with you, Ashley, has meant a ton to me. And I hope all of you listeners have enjoyed getting to know us just a little bit. And I really, I really thank you all for listening. All four of you. All, all, my mom, Ashley's mom, and a couple of our friends. Yeah. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> I'm excited for this upcoming year in this podcast because we decided to do this podcast like late, like just like this time last year in late 2019. And so then a few months into 2020 when we actually started it and then the pandemic started, we had to completely put it on pause. And then when we resumed, it was really difficult to try to figure out how to do it safely. But and we figured been, it out. Yeah, we figured it out. And we uh, pretty soon, I think we'll be able to do our original idea. Sitting on one couch together, having wine, mm -hmm. filming it. Filming it. <laughs> yes. But I've had a really good time with you too. I'm really glad that we are doing it. Yeah, we pushed through. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we had like a distraction, I mean, it's awful having murder as your distraction, as like your oasis, if you will. Um, I mean, that's our distraction all the time with I or know. without a pandemic anyways. It's true, but it's been nice kind of having something to distract us during a time of a lot of uncertainty, you know? Yeah, Just being able to talk about it with you has been nice. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I love you and I hope you have a really good holiday and time with your parents thanks ashley yay for friendship <laughs> the whole time i'm like friendship 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 <laughs> this is awesome <laughs> yay for friendship happy holidays everybody we'll see you next year next year whoa cool yeah okay love you love you too bye, bye. thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode please rate review and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening we owe everything to the many journalists authors filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram patreon.com slash crime bar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Anna Katharina.